Great singing, blessed Jesus at your word. Indeed, we are gathered to listen to the Lord speak through his word. And so if you would turn with me to your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. And as we turn to God's word, let's turn to him in prayer and ask for his aid and assistance. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we indeed are gathered all to hear you speak to us through your word and by your spirit. Father, as we have just sung, would you be pleased to open now our ears and heart and help us by your spirit's pleading. Father, we thank you that you have given us a sure guide and a sure and sure guidance for our journey all the way home. Father, may this day, this time in your word, be significant in strengthening us to walk by faith and not by sight all the way home when faith becomes sight. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Two weeks from last night, I hope that many of us and others that aren't even here this morning can be downstairs in the fellowship hall for our vision dinner where we'll look at where we've been, where we are, and where we are going. In other words, it's a look back, a look around, and a look ahead. And sometimes uh, I've been recently reminded that what goes without saying should be said. Of course we know what we're doing. Of course we know where we're headed, right? I mean, we've got the scriptures, right? We've got our confession of faith. We, we, we know what we're doing, but this vision dinner, I believe, will be helpful. It'll be a helpful reminder of God's past faithfulness, his present work, and his future unfolding of his promises. And indeed, it's interesting that I didn't even see the connection until recently, but this new series, looking back at our history and moving forward in our mission and exposition of the book of Acts, it's it's so related to what we're going to do on that Saturday evening. Now, I want us to begin today by just hearing um, the introductions to both Luke and Acts. So turn back with me to Luke 1 and listen to the first four verses. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to complete, to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now back over to Acts 1. Um, or Luke volume 2. I'll read the first five verses that we looked at last week. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, 
he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, why Acts? Why is Acts in the Bible? Have you ever asked that question? Remember, the Bible, children, can be summed up as promises made and then what? Promises kept. And all of those promises made and promises kept are all about who, children? They're all about Jesus. In the Old Testament, Jesus is predicted. In the Gospels, he is revealed. As we will see in Acts, he is preached. In the epistles or the letters, he is explained. And in the last book of the Bible, Revelation, he is expected. Well, why Acts? Well, we saw last week literarily to provide a transition between the four Gospels and the letters to the churches and to individuals. Historically, to record the history of the establishment and expansion of the church, in particular, the history and mission of the early church, to provide a background to the letters. And then practically, or pastorally, to edify believers, to strengthen faith by showing that Christianity is grounded in the acts of God in history. To show that the gospel proclaimed then is the same gospel proclaimed now. Acts, indeed, is a bridge between the four gospels and the rest of the New Testament. Written somewhere around 60 to 62 AD. 28 chapters, 1,007 verses. I hope some of you last Sunday afternoon or sometime during the week sat down and read it. It will take about two and a half hours. Acts is written by Luke, a Gentile, who interestingly wrote more words of the New Testament than Paul. He wrote more words of the New Testament than John. As you heard from his introduction to Luke, the purpose of Acts is indeed to, to provide an orderly account in order to give certainty. It's not less than historical truth, but it is much more to inform our faith, to strengthen our faith. Christianity, again, is grounded by the acts of God in history. And so at heart, Christianity is about what God does. It's about proclaiming the good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ. It's not about offering good advice. The structure of Acts can be seen personally. Peter for the first half of Acts and Paul for the second half. It can be seen geographically as we will see today in verse 8 of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And demographically as it goes out from Jews to Gentiles. And you can see it progress as the word progresses and more people come to faith in Jesus. We spoke last week about the titles of Acts. If you say Acts of the Apostles, maybe there's a little bit too much emphasis on the human element. But if then you say Acts of the Holy Spirit, maybe there's too much emphasis on the divine. Now this comprehensive, though admittedly a bit cumbersome title, I think is helpful. The Acts of the Exalted Christ by the Holy Spirit in the church, founded by Him through the Apostles. 
Acts is a selective record of all that Jesus continued to do and teach now by the Holy Spirit in the church founded by him through the apostles. It's important to note that the historical Jesus is the same Jesus of today, the contemporary Jesus that rules and reigns from the Father's right hand. Now, the arrangement today, interestingly, reminds me of some other places I've been through the years. A courtroom. It's got the sound, interestingly, of a courtroom. Now, imagine, for those of you who've seen it on TV or a movie or been in a court, remember the setup and remember the witness stand. The witness stand. And there we see and hear the oath for sworn testimony. Now, before testifying, a witness must give an oath or affirmation to testify truthfully. And it must be in a form designed to impress the duty, to impress duty on the witness's conscience. Here's the general question that is asked to the witness. Do you swear that the evidence that you shall give shall be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you God. And what's the answer? I do. Now, you would think that telling the truth would be easy, right? It wouldn't be too difficult, right? Do you know why there's a witness protection program administered by the federal government? Why U.S. Marshals protect certain witnesses before, during, and after a trial? Do you know why there is a witness protection program? It's because there is a witness intimidation program. The witness protection program is designed to protect the witness before, during, and after the trial and enable the witness to testify in court. From that oath, did you hear it? The witness needs whose help to testify? Now, granted, that phrase at the end can and is often left off now but historically it's always been there so help me God you see the witness needs the help of God to testify truthfully in a court of law and we need the help of God to testify truthfully in all of life because you see today our culture is much like the first century culture into which Luke is writing. Rome dominates. Gods proliferate. Anything and everything is tolerated. Rome rules and Christianity is just a sect of Judaism until people begin to realize that Christianity makes an exclusive claim. Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord. My friends, it's never been easy to be a Christian. But in the history of this nation for probably 200 years or so, some of the fundamental principles in Christianity and the fundamental ways that our nation went about business were often joined and linked. And so it was acceptable to identify 
as a follower of Christ. It was it helped you in business and in social circles to admit that yes, you were a member of a church. But my friends, in the past decade, in the past 20 years, in the past year, things are changing, aren't they? All you have to do is look around at a Christian trying to exercise their freedom, their faith. And our culture is more and more hostile. My friends, acts could not be coming at a better time for us. Well, our text this morning continues the account of Jesus and his apostles in the 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension. And in these verses, Luke, the historian, the theologian, and the evangelist, provides a record of the final appearance of Christ to his apostles before ascending to heaven. Join with me as I read our text for today, Acts 6, 1, 6-12. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. Well, although the central figure in our text is, of course, Jesus, the way we're going to explore the text is to consider three things about the apostles. The question they asked, the answer they received, and the sight they saw. And in doing this, I believe we will grow in our understanding of our purpose as a church and the power that we have as a church. So look look at verse 6, the question they asked. The question they asked is about the kingdom. Uh, Look back up with me at verse 3. And speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, why would they ask this question about the kingdom? Well, Jesus has been resurrected. There's the promise of the Holy Spirit to come. They are thinking that the final salvation of Israel must be imminent. For them, most likely, it was a time for a political and military solution to the Roman occupation. Now, the kingdom of God was the main theme of Jesus' message during his public ministry, as well as the central topic of conversation in this 40-day period between the resurrection and the ascension. Now, as we will see, even post-resurrection, the apostles still don't get it. They still don't understand. It will take the ascension of Jesus. It will take the coming of the Holy Spirit when they, in many ways, will get it. 
There are as many errors in the question as words. So said John Calvin in his commentary. The verb, the noun, and the adverb all betray doctrinal confusion about the kingdom. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? The verb restore. They are expecting a political and territorial kingdom. There's a misunderstanding of the nature and the power of the kingdom. The noun Israel, they're still expecting a national kingdom. They're confusing the kingdom of God with the kingdom of Israel. They're confused and misunderstand the dimensions and the extent of the kingdom of God that Jesus had been preaching and teaching. And then the adverb, at this time, they're expecting an immediate establishment. They are misunderstanding the timing and the arrival of the kingdom. Now these errors foreshadow the answer that Jesus will give about the kingdom that we will see in verse 8. You remember what Jesus said in John 3 about the kingdom of God? Before we get to John 3.16, in verse 3, says, Jesus says, you've got to be born again to, to see the kingdom. And in verse 5, you've got to be born again to enter the kingdom. The kingdom of God is his rule set up in the lives of his people by his Holy Spirit. Because Jesus is going to help them understand that the kingdom of God is spiritual in its character. It transforms lives. It's international in its membership. It includes Gentiles as well as Jews. And it's gradual in its expansion. It begins in Jerusalem and goes out from there. Well, how does Jesus respond to this question that Calvin says has as many errors in it as words? Well, let's look at the answer they received. First, let's consider the immediate answer. Verse 7 again. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. Did you notice that Jesus doesn't even address their misunderstanding of the place of national Israel? Rather, He ignores them. He ignores that comment, that question. My friends, when Jesus ignores you, it's time to stop and pay attention. Because you know, Jesus is really doing everything for our good, isn't he? And so when you feel like you're being ignored, you're asking Jesus about this, but you don't hear a response to this, pause and ask. God, to make things clear. It would be clear soon enough that Jesus would not rule from an earthly Jerusalem, but rather from a heavenly Jerusalem. He corrects their desire to know the time. He rebukes selfish impatience. Now is not the time to think about the final rewards. Now is the time to get ready to work. In other words, instead of speculating on the time, focus on the mission I am giving you. Now, Jesus' rebuke here is ignored by many people who spend, and this is an intentional pun, lots of time speculating about the time. I mean, don't we have friends 
like that? Don't we ourselves wonder that if we knew the time, if we knew when this was going to happen, how would you walk by faith and not by sight if you knew the time? You know, it's Jesus, because of his authority, can ignore us when it suits his purposes, but it's not a good idea for us to ignore him, especially his clear teaching. So Jesus corrected their mistaken notions of the nature and timing of the kingdom. Now we come now to what may be the most well-known verse in Acts, and for good reason, For the next few minutes, we're going to focus our attention on what Jesus says will happen to them and who he says they will be. Let's listen to verse 8 again. And notice it starts with a but. So they're asking a question. Jesus gives kind of an answer that he wants to give, and then he redirects it with a but. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The first part of verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now, I love going through different translations because it helps me understand better the sense of the word. And every translation I looked at said, receive, receive receive, receive. Not go out and take, not go out and achieve, but rather receive. It reminds me of John 1, right? But to those who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. To receive power, to receive strength, supernatural ability. Children, it's kind of fun every now and then to to make the comment that yes, the Greek word that's translated power is related to our word dynamite. You don't want to, you know, bank everything on that, but I think it's helpful to see that just as dynamite is powerful in its purposes, here, Jesus is speaking about a receiving of a power that will be for his purposes. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, the promise that the Spirit would come after Jesus leaves. And we see that in particular in John 14 and 16. And then it continues, you will be my witnesses. We heard some Old Testament background, Isaiah. Israel is God's servant. Israel is God's witness. The power would be given for a purpose in order to witness. Well, what do witnesses do? They speak. They declare what they have seen and heard, as we will read later in chapter 4, that the apostles say, we cannot help but declaring what we have seen and heard. Witnesses are threatened. And so what do they need? Witnesses need protection and witnesses need power. Power to witness, to live for Christ in word and deed before an unbelieving world, to become God's testimony, to become living proof that God saves, to become a part of that great cloud of witnesses that encourages us 
as we run the race before us. God's promised kingdom advances through the word of his gospel. We will see this in Acts. It's not by military force. It's not by political policy or pressure. But it's through the proclamation of the gospel. Looking back at our history and moving forward in our mission. The mission to be witnesses. Now earlier... Someone asked me, um, well, do you think that power that we receive is, is, is to be sanctification? And at first I thought, you know, yeah, hold on. It's power to speak and power to declare and power to be a witness. But you know what? The Holy Spirit is active, right, in transforming lives, right? And our lives are witnesses. And so, yes, when the You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you to speak and to declare and to live, to put sin to death and to put on righteousness. Absolutely. Now, where is this going to take place? In Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's the structure of Acts. It's a table of contents of geography and demography. From Jerusalem, chapters 1 through 7, Judea and Samaria, chapters 8 through 12, and then 13 through the end to the ends of the earth. This functions as a signpost that reveals the nature of true Israel, those blessings that Isaiah promised. From Jerusalem outward, and notice what happened in Jerusalem. It's where Jesus was rejected and Jesus was killed. And yet we will see on the day of Pentecost, it's when 3,000 people come to faith. In the Old Testament, the nations came to Jerusalem. There was the idea of nations coming. And in the New Testament, you see Jerusalem going out to the nations for those of you scientists, it's the difference between centripetal force, which brings you in, and centrifugal force that sends you out. Because we see in Revelation that there will be gathered those from every nation, tribe, people, and language. So we see that it's not restoring a kingdom, but seeing its expansion on earth. It's recognizing the kingdom. And notice it's not a last command, but it's a last declaration. You will be my witnesses. In other words, not do, but be. Become who I have declared you to be, says Jesus. You see, the time between the Pentecost, which will be coming up in about 10 days, and the parousia or the return of Jesus is to be filled with the worldwide mission of the church in the power of the Spirit. Because you see, Christ's followers then and now are to announce what he had achieved at his first coming and to then summon people to repent and believe in preparation for his second coming. Well, the time for talking is over. It is now time for action. It's time for Jesus to return to the Father. You see, before the promised spirit could come and that they would receive power, the whole Jesus, the Son, must go. And so let's look at verses 9 through 12, the sight they saw. 
The ascension of Jesus Christ is often ignored, overlooked, and not understood. And yet, it is his exaltation. We have his incarnation. We see his life, his death, his resurrection. But then, his ascension to heaven, his sitting at the right hand of God, the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost, and then Jesus' return. It's all part of redemptive history. Now, why a visible historical ascension? Well, it serves an intelligible purpose. You see, Jesus wanted them to know that he had gone for good. He would go until his return. You see, after his resurrection and before his ascension, we see in Scripture Jesus came and went. He was with them. He left. He came back. But now, with this visible historical ascension, it's his final departure as it were. In other words, Jesus is saying through this, don't wait around for me to reappear. Rather, wait for someone else to come. You notice we see in our passage the presence of angels. Remember, they interpret his birth. They interpret his resurrection And they interpret, as it were, his ascension. Two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. In other words, they are saying, Jesus will return. It is certain. He will return bodily, bodily. Bodily, wait, like in his body, yes, and visibly. Now, with the certainty of Christ's eventual return and with the promise of the imminent arrival of the Spirit, their gaze heavenward is a distraction. You see, they're still a bit confused. In other words, the angels are saying, get ready to work because the all-encompassing mission is here. Now, when was the last time you all thought about the ascension of Jesus? I mean, we talk about his crucifixion and his resurrection, but let's admit it, honestly. When was the last time you thought about the importance of Jesus' ascension? Well, we get some help from the Heidelberg Catechism, question 49, which asks this question. How does Christ's ascension to heaven benefit us? You know, It's not wrong to ask, what benefits do we get for being a Christian, okay? There's a lot of cost, right? Deny yourself, take up the cross, follow me, count the cost. See if you've got enough money to build the tower. See if you've got enough in the army to wage war. There's a cost, but there's benefits. So what's the benefit of the ascension of Jesus? Here's their answer. First, He pleads our cause in heaven in the presence of his Father. Second, we have our own flesh in heaven, a guarantee that Christ our head will take us, his members, to himself in heaven. Third, he sends his Spirit to us on earth as a further guarantee. By the Spirit's power, listen to this, by the Spirit's power, we make the goal of our lives, not earthly things, but the things above where Christ is sitting at God's right hand. You see, Jesus 
retains a physical body. The miracle of the incarnation is forever. He ever lives to make intercession. And my friends, this is a great comfort and encouragement because Jesus is still a man. He knows our weakness. Quite often we pray using Hebrews 4 about going to the throne of grace. And before that, it speaks of Jesus having passed through the heavens. Jesus, the man who knows our weakness and yet without sin, he can plead for us. You see, in heaven, Jesus always prays for us and from heaven, he rules us. My friends, the ascension is good, wonderful news for the believer. Now, why did I include verse 12 in this preaching text? Why did Luke include it? For a purpose, because it shows that the apostles really did obey Jesus not to depart from Jerusalem, but to stay and wait. So we've seen the purpose to witness and the power that the apostles then and all believers now will receive to witness. And we saw that through the question they asked, the answer they were given, and the sight they saw. Well, a few questions as we draw to a close. Going back to last week, how are you doing right now when Jesus, through his word and by his spirit, says, stay and wait? Stay and wait, stay and wait. Oh, it takes faith, persevering faith, faith that is informed by the scriptures to stay and wait. How do you understand the kingdom of God? Is it political? Is it national? The American flag is not in here today. I think that's a good thing. It's wonderful to be a citizen of the United States and we should thank God for the blessing every day. But it is far more wonderful to be a citizen of a kingdom that will never end. A kingdom whose benefits multiply and multiply over and over again. And third question, how are you doing at being a witness of the kingdom? You say you have no time to witness? Did you hear the text? You are witnesses. You can't help it but be a witness. That's who you are. But you know what? You're not so much witnesses of a kingdom as you are witnesses of a king. And it's important to see that this is in the plural. But you all, y'all will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon y'all and y'all will be my witnesses. This is to the church through the apostles. We're witnesses of a king. So my friends, what do people see? In us, do they see us serve that king? Or do they see us fundamentally serve 
ourselves? Do they see us admitting and acknowledging weakness and our sin? Do they see us asking for help from God, forgiveness from God? My friends, are you testifying that Jesus is your Savior and that you now belong to Him as Lord? Because you see, your testimony is not limited to this dramatic, to a dramatic story of your conversion, even if there is one. Rather, your witness, your testimony is the lifelong humble obedience to God through all the ups and downs of life. You see, my friends, it's not the extraordinary that often draws attention. It's rather the ordinary. Ordinary faithfulness, ordinary truth-telling, ordinary loving your family, ordinary participating in the work of the church. It's ordinary. You see, the Holy Spirit is not only the witness protection program for us. The Holy Spirit is also the witness power program. Because witnesses are threatened and intimidated. Oh, it's going to get worse, my friends. Standing up for Jesus. Oh, how we need one another to encourage one another in that. You see, witnesses are threatened and intimidated, but witnesses are also defended, protected, and empowered. So my friends, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth about Jesus? So help you God. By the Holy Spirit's indwelling presence and power in us, we will. Indeed, we will see in Acts how Jesus keeps his promises to be with his church, including this one here, and to build his church, including this one here, through the personal presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that if we are honest, we are often nervous and anxious and feel intimidated and threatened to speak the truth about Jesus. Oh, Father, would you help us to not be afraid? Help us to see that there is a power in us that is greater than any power in the world. Help us to see that in the world we will have trouble, but in Jesus we have peace and through Jesus we have victory over sin and death. Father, we thank you for this promise of the Holy Spirit, this promise of power, and we see how it served the apostles in the writing of the scripture and the expansion of the faith. Oh, Father, we pray and ask that that power would be operative in the life of this church to protect us, to defend us, but also to power us and to promote the gospel going forward in its saving power. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.